Okay, Wendy, tell us something about you that nobody would believe. That I shot another woman? Welcome to an episode of Find Your Voice, a movement led by yours truly, Aaron Dew, a guy who has overcome crippling anxiety, adversity, and difficulty like so many of you in life, whose main goal now is to help you combat your excuses, take control of your life, write your own story, and most importantly, find your voice. So now, without further ado, I welcome the host of the show himself, Mr. Aaron Dew. Okay, so I would like to welcome Wendy Adamson onto today's episode of Find Your Voice. This is going to be an absolutely incredible story. And I just said to Wendy, just before I press the record button, it's like a movie. It's honestly like a movie. I was reading it and I was thinking, has this all happened to this lady all through a journey? So firstly, Wendy, welcome to Find Your Voice. How are we doing today? Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to be on your show. Yeah, I'm doing great. Love to hear that. And I'm glad you're doing great. And you're actually doing great having come from a place where, wow, adversity really was your shadow almost. And um, I don't want to spoil it for the listeners. I think it's going to sound so much better from yourself. So tell us about your story 25 years ago when you were completely different. I know you wasn't fine then. So if you wouldn't mind, because at the minute you're doing incredible things, you're an author, a counselor motivational speaker and entrepreneurs. It's incredible. But where did Wendy start? Um, I grew up with um, a schizophrenic mother that was mentally ill. And back in the, it was the 60s. And, you know, they used shock treatment, heavy doses of Melaril and Thorazine. But growing up, um, the thing that was, I was always on flight, fight or freeze. So there was like cortisol pumping into my bloodstream. And it was a time when the I was developing, you know, I was developing, and the architecture of my brain and neural pathways were developing. So um, as a result, I was always on fear, in fear. And then she actually killed herself when I was seven, and she um, cut her wrist, and she pulled a big trunk full of photographs of her children and of her uh, wedding on top of her in a bathtub and drowned. So that's like a huge metaphor for the, you know, buried, drowning under her family and under her responsibility and her dreams. So needless to say, you know, I had a lot of fear. And uh, I feel that when a parent kills themselves, that is always an option in the child. It's an imprint. It's like been imprinted in your consciousness, your psyche. So when I found alcohol and drugs, I was self-medicating that fear, that PTSD, if you will, of living with a mother always trying to kill herself on and off, you know, like just, so drugs and alcohol became my solution. It became a way that I could be in the world and not kill myself. Does that make sense? It makes sense in terms of how you said it is coherent and everything, but obviously I can't comprehend even thinking about what you had to experience in terms of losing a parent, especially one who felt at that point her choice had to be killing herself. So I'm, I'm actually lost for words if I'm being completely honest there. And I suppose to some element, it does explain why you started self-medicating as your sort of almost like a comfort, I suppose, in terms of trying to get over this fear. Yeah. I mean, it was like I had extreme social phobia. I had lack of trust for people. So there was some um, it left an imprint, an impact on me, you know, obviously. And then my dad was alcoholic because he couldn't handle, you know, all of the disappointment. 
I think he was an alcoholic before she uh, killed herself. But in any case, um, you know, I always felt like I can't metabolize these emotions that I'm feeling. I can't metabolize the fear, the anxiety, the depression. Oh, like dark, dark depression. And so, like I said, alcohol first, then drugs later gave me a way to metabolize. It's like, oh, I, oh, I'm okay. You know, I can be around people. I can do, I can be around, um, I can go to the party. I can feel like, it, I can say that uh, I dealt with extreme self-hatred, you know, I just extreme. And uh, I think that comes from growing up in that kind of environment. I don't know, it could come from other places as well. But in any case, when I found drugs and alcohol, I just, that is, was my solution to the problem. And the problem was me. And that went on and on and on. And it accelerated um, to the point, uh, we'll jump to the 90s, early 90s, when I'm married, I have two boys, 16 and nine. And, um, you know, I started doing methamphetamine. You know, it's like uh, as a way to get things done. I mean, it's trying to hold together an image that, you know, I go to little league games with my son, uh, you know, trying to, you know, function in the world, but having this double life, if you will, you know. And um, the thing about my mother, I'm just going to regress here for a minute. When she, when I found out she killed herself, I, you know, I didn't find out at seven years old the true, the actual way she died. My dad said it was a heart attack. But when I was becoming a teenager, around thirteen, I found out the real way she died. I said I'd never, ever, ever, ever be like my mother, you know. And it's like when you say never, it's like giving the u- universe the exact coordinates to where you're going to land, because she killed herself at 38. And at 38, I had a psychotic break, just like she did. But oh, but it it was like on drugs. So it wasn't just like, but I mean, you know, I became my mother, basically. The very, I ended up being the exact thing I didn't want to become. And so I had a psychotic break. And in this kind of um, double life that I was living and this, you know, doing this uh, Matt, the speed. Uh, I had it, you know, like that psychotic break. I didn't know I was in the middle of a psychotic break because when you're having one, you're the last to know. You know, you you can't reason. So, in any case, my husband at the time was cheating on me, and it it occurred to me the night he went out like to score some drugs with this girl, and so. My best thinking was when he gets home, I'm going to, I'm going to scare him. I'm going to scare them both. They won't do this to me. So I had a gun, a 38 Smith and Wesson in the house. And my youngest, my nine-year-old son was asleep and my older son was spending the night at his friends. So I waited till they got home. And as I'm waiting, I'm building myself into a frenzy, if you will. I like a lot of anger. Again, 
I never learned how to metabolize my feelings. I never learned a healthy way to process. You add speed on top of that, you're like in trouble. So when they drove up slowly looking and got back that night, I grabbed the gun and ran outside and fired like a shot over the car to scare them as they were, they were passing by very slowly looking for a parking spot. And, um, you know, it's like, so that I was, I was like totally out of my mind in a frenzy and, um, they turned the corner and I ran after the car and he stopped the car for some reason. I don't know the reasoning for that, except that he was also loaded. Um, and I kind of just laid across the, um, the hood of the car and pointed the gun at him. And then I had, you know, a brief moment of clarity where I, I felt like, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing? You're out, you know, if anybody were to see you right now, they might think you were crazy, you know? So um, then he put on the gas and I came off the hood and fired another round. So that, and I fired it towards, I thought at the time, my best recollection is towards the ground, but somehow it ricocheted and it went through the girl's arm that he was with. So, um, that it was like, you know, um, that he drove off, my husband drove off with her, would end up taking her to the hospital. I would end up going to jail, you know, for assault with a deadly weapon. And after he took her to the hospital that same night, he brought her home and moved her into my house. So I'm in jail, you know, I was I thought I was trying to save my marriage in this, you know, crazy state. And I totally gave him permission to go full on with this other woman. So that's where, that's where this story, my book begins at that point is um, the night I go to jail and uh, the, just that, you know, leveling circumstance that, that like, horrible like to come like to finally when the the started to clear when my brain started to clear and when I started and it took days I'll tell you it wasn't like you know I you know once you lose your mind how do you get it back doesn't come back just instantly so I gradually you know started to get clarity and going what have I done what have I done? You know, what are you doing, you know, with your life? You know, um, when I, when I started to realize that it took a while, but while I was in jail for a year, I realized I, the only language I ever spoke was like victimese. You know, I'm a victim. My mother was schizophrenic. You don't understand. My dad's an alcoholic. You don't understand. Now my husband has cheated on me. You don't understand. Look what these people have done to me. You know, you would use to. I mean, wouldn't you use to? I, you know, this is the case I was always building until I had the realization in jail that I go, you know what? I broke my own heart. I'm, I'm breaking my own heart. I am wasting my life. What the hell are you doing? So... That's when I started to wake up a little bit, but it would take much more than that.
What do you think? I would just have, wonder if you have any questions. Absolutely. I mean, I've almost written a book here myself. Just on, <laughs> a fascinating story. And I think even hearing it from yourself is so much more powerful than reading about yourself when I was Googling it and trying to research you. So I have numerous questions, so bear with me here. So I'm always fascinated by why people do the things that they do. And you hit the nail on the head towards the end of it, actually, where you said the victim mentality. We can very quickly change the narrative in our head to excuse ourselves for why we're not doing the right thing. We can say, oh, well, you don't know what it's like for me. You haven't lived in my shoes. And I, I completely get that because I see somebody here, especially as a child who's only ever seen the people who are supposed should be role models around her use and abuse drugs, which in effect has affected you. It's seen you almost start to hate yourself, struggle with social anxiety with other people. And that's worrying. And I can't sit here and say, well, you should have done better because I don't know if I would have done better. I'm not sure if anyone listening would have done better. So it's easy in hindsight to sit here and say, ah, you're, you're a victim and you should have a victor mentality instead and really try and take control of that. But what is beautiful from this whole thing is you said in the middle of that story, and this is obviously because of where you are today, the problem was me. And you said that and you recognize that. And I love that because you saying that now is obviously you taking accountability for your actions and you recognize actually you're ruining your own life, which is incredible because if anyone goes through even a 10th of what you've just been through, I accept if they go through that path and they self-destruct because sometimes it's a lot to take on. You've taken on so, so much, but you managed to turn it around. And that's what I absolutely love about your story because otherwise you would have been, Wendy, a statistic. You would have been another statistic of somebody and like I said before this show, I've worked in social care. I've got siblings from social care and I never want them to be a statistic. In fact, I don't want anyone to be a statistic. I wish we all had that growth mentality that let's not allow our current circumstances or our past circumstances dictate our future. And what you're doing now, which I'm so glad to see because you're in a much better place, is doing more positive stuff. So kudos to you. I want to acknowledge you for having overcome unbelievable amount of adversity. I mean, we've only just touched on it ever so briefly into where you are today. So can I just quickly ask as a sort of ending question to that then? You've mentioned a few times in terms of metabolizing your feelings. Are you now able to do that? Yes, I'm allowed. I mean, here's the thing. It's like when feelings come up, I used to think they would kill me. I used to think they would take me down because I was so depressed, you know, and, and rightly so. But you know, it's interesting, your podcast is called Finding Your Voice. When I was a kid and my mother was having these schizophrenic breaks over and over again, my father told us not to talk about it. Don't tell the nuns at school. Don't tell your friends. This is no one's business. It's no, it's, you know, we don't tell anybody. So I lost my voice. I lost my voice. And I have found that part of my healing, part of my ability to metabolize my emotion is through voice and through choice. I have the choice to use my voice and rewrite the narrative on my story. Now, if, I, if all of these things would have happened to me and I would keep them in you know, my own trunk, like my mother did, if I would have kept keep these in my own trunk, it's useless. It's a secret. But when I pull them out and say, look what I've been through and, and look, you know, it doesn't, it's to inspire others and to show others you can get to the other side. I've gone back to juvenile halls that I've been in as a kid. I, I went into the system. I was in a foster home. Uh, you know, 
So I've, I've gone back to those juvenile halls and talked to the girls that are there and they identify with me. So it's like, you know, maybe all of that experience, everything I went through, can, I can turn it into a tool to help somebody else. I found that as a drug and alcohol counselor. Listen, all of the, you know, it's like there, I didn't, I, I ended up going to school for um, credentialing for counseling, but the most valuable education I got was my life experience. Because when I talk to somebody that is struggling with addiction and I know exactly what they're going through, what they're feeling physically, mentally, emotionally, it's the broken parts in me that can reach the broken part in them. So I became a very, very effective counselor as that. Um, but when the feelings, I also had to do my own work. And when my feelings, I didn't grieve my mother until I became sober. Okay, so, and I, I'm sober 26 years. So when my dad told us not to talk about, we also didn't go to the funeral. Okay, so there was no process of grief. So no wonder I didn't know how to metabolize emotions. But now I allow myself space. You know, sometimes I might resist it a little bit. I mean, I'm a human. You know, I might like let, what can I do to distract myself so I don't have to feel this pain? But I don't take anything to alter my consciousness, you know, from the neck up. Um, and I try to stay present. Ultimately, I just, I allow myself to feel the pain or I allow myself to feel the joy, you know, whichever the case. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. So firstly, congratulations on 26 years. That's absolutely Thank you. amazing. Absolutely amazing. And as you said that last bit about the feeling, the pain. So Robin Sharma, who's somebody I follow, he says to heal a wound, you must first feel a wound. And when he said that, it was like, oh my God, that's incredible. That, that makes so much more sense. And that's effectively what you've had to do. It broke my heart a little bit when you said growing up as a child, you, you lost your voice. You were almost told, let's just stay quiet here. Let's not, let's not talk about it. And as a child, when you're developing and you're trying to understand the world, which is hard enough as it is, you struggled. But I loved afterwards how you found power in finding your voice. And this is why I kind of call it Find Your Voice. It has a lot of reasons behind it. And you had that choice. And your life experiences, people like you, Wendy, is, is what Find Your Voice is all about. Having people who have been through it all because I have a certain level of adversity that I've been through in life, but that's it. My story ends there. I want to show people that every single one of us has a story. And whether that is having to shoot the mistress of your husband or being on drugs and ended up in county jail, or whether it is just simply anxiety or just shyness or fear of going out into public spaces, for us at that particular time, it is literally like the hardest thing in the world. And I just want people to gain encouragement that you can turn it around. Look, we've, you've got me smiling here because alcohol addiction, especially in my family, it's taken its course on a lot of the very, very close people. And I always want to live in hope when I hear stories like yourself that one day maybe they'll turn it around and they can really try and figure it out. But again, I can't control that. And there's been times in my life I've tried to help them be around them 24-7, make sure nothing happens, but they need to make that decision. And you mentioned something towards the end that was fantastic as well, that you're human. So some days you don't want to experience that or you don't want to go through that emotion. What you don't do is when you distract yourself, you don't use anything like alcohol or something. So uh, kudos to you. And uh, thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. Getting sober was the best thing I ever did. You know, 
it's like I had to, you know, I mean, it was the hardest thing I ever did for me because since I'd been medicating for, since I was a teenager, that when I sobered up, um, you know, in my late 30s, I um, was like being a teenager again. It was like I'm under the influence, if you will. So the same social anxiety was back. The same depression came back. Um, you know, all of all of that, like being in the world, like now what? I have no buffer between me and these emotions. And I found a lot of things that helped. You know, exercise was one of them. I lived, I lived by really close to the beach and I used to rollerblade when I first got sober. And there was something um, that would help me so much, like get out of my head and, you know, be like just, you know, also, you know, the, the endorphins, you know, helped with the depression. Uh, not to say I didn't, you know, I still had some depression, but it helped. It helped immensely. So I did things, you know, and I talked to other people. I created a support system. Uh, you know, and one of my primary purposes was to to um, heal the relationship with my boys, heal the relationship with my boys, because I had done so much damage, you know, and one of the reasons I wrote the book, uh, for many reasons, well, one of them is being, uh, you know, all of those mothers that have made mistakes, all of those fathers that have made mistakes raising their kids, because we do. We do. Nobody gave me a book. There was no class for me telling, you know, growing up, like, this is how you be a parent. This is how you model. You know, I had no role models. So for all of those people that are suffering or all of those people that are incarcerated and have made a terrible mistake, that they feel that there's no way out. There's no way to heal the relationship. I wanted to tell them there is a way. There is a way, but I had to remain sober. I had to remain present for my kids. It didn't have, I could, it's like, I can't just say, I'm sorry, kids. You know, oh, I did that too, but that's not enough. I had to show them what a sober, loving mother looks like and change the trajectory of alcoholism, addiction, mental illness, change it to one of recovery and one of healing and one of redemption. We have a choice. So for all of those people that have no role models, I didn't have a role model when I was growing up or in jail, you know, so I wanted to write the book for them. I love that. What is the book, by the way, Wendy? It's called Mother Load, L-O-A-D, Mother Load. A lot of metaphor there. I was carrying the load of my mother. Uh, my resentments caused me to become her. And then... I was free by forgiving her for one, and I became free by becoming the mother that I never had for my children, my boys. I love that because I think your story is so incredible for so many reasons. That's gonna that book itself is gonna help so so many people. You don't need to go through the abuse or the trauma or everything that you've been through in order to get value from that book because you're getting real life experience. I'm so happy that you've obviously turned everything around from the recovery, healing, and redemption side. I'm sure you're your boys now are looking at you and they're very, very proud of you for what you've done because you've not just said it. I've heard alcoholics talk every day. Oh, this is my last drink from tomorrow. I'm going to start. I've sent it to the, to the closest people in my heart. 
and it breaks my heart because the next day I'm expecting the same thing. You now give me hope that hopefully maybe that they can move forward. And I'm actually, I, I, I promise you now I will order your book because I just hope it will help them move forward as well in whatever they're going through. Because as parents, and I'm not a parent yet, so I'm not going to say anything that I've got no context behind, but nobody's given a blueprint. You know, my parents did the best things. They knew what they could do um, in terms of raising me. I'm forever grateful. There's certain things I probably wouldn't do if I have children. There's certain things I absolutely would do as well because I'm, I'm very grateful. I come into a very loving family. So that's an incredible insight into you and your story. And I think having it on paper as well is definitely going to help people because your story is just incredible. It's like I said, it's like a film and forgiveness. You mentioned that as a, as a final point I've just written here is one of the most powerful things I can ever say to anyone. So I'm so grateful to have guests like you on this show who share your stories your vulnerabilities and everything. So for that, I'm forever grateful. And for the hundredth episode that I'm doing for Find Your Voice, it's actually going to be my story. And the theme of my story is forgiveness because the thing that held me back and took a big section of my life that I don't want it to take anyone else's life was forgiveness. And when I was able to forgive whatever happened for me, obviously I'm going to save it for that show. I'm not going to talk about it now. My life completely changed. I was just in such an unbelievable amount of place. And, and I say that as a guy who, as guys, especially I'm talking seven, eight years ago, it's all about being strong. It's all about bravado. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't want to go, go up to someone and forgive them. What for us, like that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make logical sense at that point. I now obviously know in hindsight, it's one of the most powerful things. So thank you, Wendy, for sharing that. I want to spin it a little bit now then, because you've been through more adversity than many of my guests have, and you've come out the other side, which is absolutely fantastic. And long may that continue. What's a day-to-day like then for yourself? Because you mentioned exercise, you mentioned talking and these little things that will help people release endorphins and just keep you focused and not relapsing. What else do you do in your day then? Service is a big component to my life. Um, As an addict and alcoholic, we're very self-centered. You know, addiction is very much about self. It's a very much a very selfish uh, condition. So, um, when I started to wake up, I realized that, you know, again, all of my experience can help somebody else. And when I was living in that, um, when I got out of jail, living in a women and children's shelter with my youngest son, I was on, you know, the dole, I think you call it there, or or welfare, we call it here. And um, I couldn't afford to buy my son's shoes. And so one day, this woman that had gone through the transitional house with her son bought my youngest son, Ricky, two pairs of shoes. Okay, so it made all the difference in the world to him. As, as um, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you a story so that you'll see what my life is about. Um, so um, she bought him two pairs of shoes, but as, as a result of his deprivation, he became a sneakerhead. So by the time he's in his 30s, he has over 150 pairs of shoes, right? They, they are from the floor to the ceiling just boxes of Nikes and every color imaginable, but he's having like a crisis. He's got, he has no purpose in his life. You know, he's unhappy. You know, he's just like, what am I doing? He's a photographer. The taking the photographs don't mean anything. And he looked over at those shoes and he thought, what am I doing with so many shoes? You know, I hardly wear any of them. And there are people out there that don't have any. So he loaded up his car the next day and drove around the streets of Los Angeles and gave away some of his shoes, his shoe collection. He posted on Instagram. 
And then immediately there was like all this buzz, like, oh, that's so cool. How can we help? So um, that was five years ago, right? And he's like, turn that idea, that idea into have a soul, a nonprofit, S-O-L-E. So I work part-time for have a soul. That is like giving out shoes to at-risk youth, kids that are coming out of the foster system, have nowhere to go, people that are homeless, people that are at shelters. We went back to that women and children's shelter many times to give out everybody's shoes there. So again, that Becky that gave Ricky two pairs of shoes back in the early 90s didn't do it because he was going to pay it forward. But as a result of that one act of kindness, it left an imprint on him and two decades go by. And since then, we've given out over 20,000 pairs of shoes. We have Nike as a huge supporter. Thank you, Nike. We have Finish Line. Uh, We have the Herbert Simon family grant. Uh, They're amazing. Uh, They have been behind us so much. And it's just, it's amazing. Clippers, the Clippers, you know, foundation. Um, You know, we've been invited recently to the Lakers game. It's so, it's like, what do I do with my time? I, I use, I try to be a value. I, you know, I was sucking, I was, could suck the energy right out of the room when I was in my addiction. Right. So it's like, I believe that love is action. I believe love is action. So I try to take action and to be of where I come from, you know, basically. My son didn't forget, you know, he remembered what it felt like to receive a pair of shoes, you know, and as a result, he became an addict, a shoe addict, but not till he started giving, he gets more from giving out shoes than he ever did from getting shoes. Wow. What a, what a beautiful story. So have a soul. I'll definitely put that in the show notes as well. So people can obviously go support that as well. I think that's absolutely incredible. And it comes again from the act of kindness, which I think is one of the, the greatest traits that all of us can have. And it's, it's funny you mentioned that I was doing a, a separate podcast yesterday with one of my good friends. We do a men's mental health podcast as well, just to help men going through whatever they're going through in life. And he's got a young daughter and one of the things he's taught us so well is that being kind is better than being beautiful. So how girls grow up and want to be princesses and be beautiful, she's always trying to be kind. But then obviously the back end of that is being kind is beautiful as well. And I was like, if we just grow up just being kind to one another, that one act can literally spark so many people. And that's, that's such a beautiful story. And even with your son there, so yes, he may have had this addiction with sneakers at one point. What's beautiful is he's seen his mother go through a hard time, a very difficult time. And he could have easily ended up in county jail or doing something stupid as well. And he never, and he made the right choice there. So kudos to him as well for the amazing work that he's doing. So uh, your family sounds amazing, Wendy. But thank you. I'm so, I'm so proud of him. And just um, on the, my other son, because he's doing amazing as well. He did end up in jail. He did follow in my footsteps for a while. You know what I mean? So just like I was following in my mother's footsteps, my oldest son, Jerry, was following in my footsteps, but he is healing his wounds by, he's a father, a devoted father these days. And he's like always at basketball practice with his boys at the games. He's like in the bleachers cheering them on. So, um, you know, that took some time. It, you know, that's again, breaking the trajectory 
of addiction, alcoholism, because your kids, you leave an imprint on, on them. Just like I was imprinted. My psyche was imprinted by my parents. I imprinted something, a message to my kids. I want to imprint something else. I want to imprint. And it seems to work. It seemed, and not overnight, but it, you know, it takes time, but you know, the service giving back to the community, community building, you know, the cool thing about have a soul, which, um, I really like it's um it has enough of the cool factor there's you know the sneakers the sneaker culture photography you know a lot of content social media content that it and um it attracts young people millennials and other people to get involved in their community and volunteer you know so uh, we come from a very like self-centered kind of society. So they come and they give out a pair of shoes and we don't just hand out a pair of shoes. We fit the person with it like, and give them a retail experience. And this person that comes to volunteer gets the immediate satisfaction of what it's like to help another human being, you know, and they walk away just to having a profound change and they often come back to volunteer again. Again, we spoke about this prior to this episode. It's about being that change, almost showing people rather than telling people. Because I feel in life, a lot of my greatest assets, such as work ethic or being kind or being a person of my word, have come from seeing what my parents always did. My par- my parents, my mom, especially, worked 90 hours a week consistently. My dad was always a person you never tell a lie. It's always got to be 100% honest. And I was getting front row seats to stuff like that and the kindness and stuff. And you guys now are going out there and doing absolutely incredible things in service, especially coming from such a self-centered place as well. But I think we're all going to agree that giving always, always beats receiving. I mean, if we just think to, I think you guys have Thanksgiving, we have Christmas, which is really big. Obviously you guys have Christmas as well, but when you give someone a present, that's so much better than whatever you receive back. Um, I know, I know my, myself personally. So um, it's, it's just a beautiful thing that you're doing. So I'm going to segue ever so slightly then, Wendy, if I may then just for the purpose of your time as well and for, for this episode, having been through everything that you've been through and now having the right tools around you and the mindset of not being a victim anymore in terms of, you know, you can change your circumstances and you can move forward in life. What's your biggest fear right now? Uh, my biggest fear. So, uh, well, I'm writing a second book right now and, um, I don't know that I'm afraid, you know, but it's, um, let me see, I don't know that it would be fair to qualify that as fear. You know, honestly, I, not that I'm fearless, you know, I deal sometimes like still a little bit of social anxiety when I'm in big events. I do marketing for a a teenage, um, an adolescent mental health facility. So sometimes I'll get a little fearful, but what has been very empowering, and this, I mean, this is the truth, is finding my voice, is finding my voice, writing my book. It's like when I wrote my book and put it out there, these were all the secrets my dad told us not to talk about. I was breaking a deep-seated conditioning that I had been conditioned as a child to keep secrets. So find, making the choice to write the book and finding my voice and putting it out there, I had no control. So here, here we are sitting, you know, doing this podcast, you know, you in the UK, me in Los Angeles, you know, I put that out there and look how it connected us. 
You know, we would not have it connected had I not written the book. So finding my voice, you're finding your voice in your way. I'm finding my voice in my way. But doing that was like, it was like so empowering. It was like, you know, I can't control what others know about me. And who cares? You know, some days I do care, but for the most part, it was like the shame doesn't own me anymore. The fear doesn't own me. You know, I I can sometimes I'll have fear, but I kind of walk through it. I acknowledge it. I see it for what it is. And like when you've gone through things like I have, you know, and you've made it through the other side, when you've gone through the loss, the grief, getting sober, when you've gone through uh, putting a book out there for the world to see, it's like, it's like empowering. It really is empowering and healing. So I don't have big fears now, but you know, that's just today. And I, that's all I have is today. I love that. I absolutely love that. And I think the last sentence I think you said there was once you put yourself out there and you share your voice, you, you do a few things actually. One is if you're struggling, you open yourself up for support the right person might come into your life to help you. But at the same time, if you just share your vulnerabilities and you just get everything off in the hope that it'll help someone or inspire someone, or even just for your own sanity, what then happens is the empowering feeling is that nobody has anything else they can say back at you, if that makes sense. So it's almost like, that's my worst. And I'll just carry on with my journey. And it's so refreshing. So I'm a very, very emotional character. And I held that in till I was about the age of 31. And then when I really started finding your voice, I said, listen, I'm just going to tell everyone, X, Y, and Z. This is 100% me. The funny thing was, that going back to that podcast that I do on a Tuesday for the mental health thing, all of us sitting there talk about how much we cry. And it's strange because the narrative for guys isn't to cry. But I've put that out there. And all of a sudden now, it is an empowering thing to just say. I mean, I can openly say it now. And I know most men, women included, will look at that and think, right, actually, it's okay. I mean, we almost go through society, I suppose, and we manufacture rules on how certain people should be. And I, and I I want to kind of scratch that and just say, look, find your voice, find the person that you are intended to be in this world. And to do that, it does take courage. It does, does take writing a book like yourself and saying, well, this is me. And I can imagine first, you're probably thinking, what's the reception going to be like? But for you, for somebody who says you want to bring value every time, you brought some incredible value to this episode, Wendy. So uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart. On that note, Wendy, I want to just segue into the fun part of the show before we close the show down. And on this part, I'm just going to put you through your paces and ask you the most random questions for 60 to 90 seconds. So whenever you're ready, I'm going to get started. Go ahead. Okay, Wendy, tell us something about you that nobody would believe. That I shot another woman? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, your, favorite, <laughs> your favorite book? Right now, I have to say is Motherload. Your biggest mistake last year? Not writing sooner. Your proudest achievement? My relationships with my boys. Your favorite motivational speaker? Uh, right now, I'd say Brene Brown. If you had an extra hour a day, how would you spend it? Writing. The best lesson anyone has ever taught you? When you give, you have more to give. If you could get the listeners to practice one thing after this episode, what would it be? Meditation. If you could abolish one thing in the world, what would it be? Hatred. The ability to read minds or predict the future? Read people's minds. Who is your biggest role model? I'm going to say right now, Amy Dresner. Your favorite color? Green and orange. The ability to fly or be invisible? To fly. And finally, Wendy, what would you like to be remembered for? For making a difference. I love that. I think you're going to do just fine with that. 
So that does bring us almost towards the end of the show now, sadly. And I just have two more questions, if I may, Wendy, for yourself. So the first one is about reflection. So I believe that hindsight is a wonderful thing because it teaches us ways that we could have got there quicker, easier, or with less heartache. But at the same time, I also believe the journey teaches us so much as well. And it's the journey that makes us who we are today. If you could go back maybe to a younger Wendy and whisper something in her ears, what would you say? That you're never alone. You're not alone. Powerful. And then finally, Wendy, the last question, sadly, of this episode is about legacy. So if in 150 years time, all that exists is a book and this book is about you. It's about your life and all of the amazing things that you've done and achieved. Firstly, what would the title of the book be? And secondly, what would the summary at the back tell us about you? So I believe that what I have to give is my experience. And if I can articulate that in a book, the book uh, would be about my adolescence and my teens. And what it would say at the end is that, you know, in spite of adversity, in spite of everything that you go through, that there is a purpose, there is a reason you've gone through it, and you can get through anything and more than you can even imagine, uh, as Wendy did in her life. As Wendy did do, and she's doing right now. So Wendy, just before I close the show and give you a chance to tell the listeners where they can contact you, where they can follow you, where they can look at your book as well, I definitely urge everyone to read that book. I'll certainly be downloading or buying it, however you've got it available after this show. Is there anything you want to leave the audience with? Is there any questions that you wish I had asked you that you maybe want to share? No, I think we were quite thorough. You know, I think it was was a pleasure talking to you, and I'm so glad um, to be on a a podcast with finding your voice, because that's really what it's all about. And it's the connection, making connections. And, you know, the impact we have on others. It's so important. And when we're quiet about what we're going through, other people can't help. And I think that the one thing that I would say is that, well, I tried to like hold, you know, tried to be a tough girl in ways. It's like I had no defense against kindness. People's kindness, it, it, it's just... I have no defense. And I think we really need to be kind to each other. Absolutely. What a beautiful message. And what is the best place, Wendy, that people can connect with you, hear about your book, and just maybe follow your journey as well? So I'm on Facebook, Wendy Adamson. I also have um, my own um, website, wendyadamson.com. And then if you want to pick up the book, uh, you can get it at Amazon. It's Mother Load, as I said, L-O-A-D by Wendy Adamson. And if you want to follow Have a Soul on Instagram, my son's nonprofit, it's a lowercase H-A-V-A-S-O-L-E. So follow that journey. Um, he's actually taking a, um, off on a Have a Soulful trip across the United States and he is going to, um, it's dedicated to Kobe Bryant. And he's going to, planning on going to Kobe Bryant's high school and bringing shoes there to the kids there as a tribute to Kobe Bryant. I love that. I love that. It would also be um, an honor as well if I can reach out. And I'd love to share his story on Find Your Voice as well, because I think spreading kindness and spreading something like that, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. So 
I might actually reach out if he'd if he's got a few uh, hours or so in the day. Yeah, I would. He's going to be gone a lot of this month, February. Please reach out to him. He's got a beautiful. He's a beautiful soul like you, and uh, you would love. You guys would connect for sure. Well, thank you so much, Wendy, from the bottom of my heart. It was an absolute pleasure of an interview. Obviously, don't be a stranger. Now, one of the things I always try and do with my guests is support them on their journey because without you, find your voice would be nothing. You guys help make this platform what it is. You guys help inspire the people who listen to this with your work, with your courage. And just being completely transparent with your story. So thank you so much for your time today. And also for anyone else at home, thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you so much. And remember, this podcast is absolutely free. So all we ask in return is for you to share this with a friend and drop us a five-star review over on iTunes. Have an awesome day.